Welcome to the Book Club Girl podcast, where we chat about great books with awesome authors and you, our listeners, ask the questions. I'm Eliza Rosenberry, and today we're talking about the first book in a series, a beloved series. And one of my favorite series books is by Hilary Mantel. It's the Wolf Hall Trilogy. They're just such brilliant books. The first two won the Man Booker Prize. They're all about their historical novels. They're about Thomas Cromwell and Henry VIII. And they're just, I don't read a ton of historical fiction. Like it's not my favorite genre, but those books are just amazing and such a good series. You've talked about them before, Eliza. I know you're a huge fan. I'm Tavia Kowalchuk. And I am also going to talk about books that we've talked about before. So some of my favorite series are authors we've gotten to interview on the show. I love the Wicked Years series by Gregory Maguire. I'm just a total fan. And of course, the Day of Abad trilogy by S.A. Chakraborty. Big, big fan of that. And an author who, unfortunately, we won't ever be able to interview on the show, Laura Ingalls Wilder. I you know, have such a warm place in my heart for the Little House on the Prairie series. I love those books too. I read them all when I was a kid. Yeah. On today's show, Daphne Bridgerton is the eldest daughter of the charming and powerful Bridgerton clan. She strikes up a deal with the Duke of Hastings. They will feign courtship so as to not be bothered by the rest of society during party season. Today, we discuss the best-selling Regency set romance novel, Bridgerton, The Duke and I. And later on in the show, we chat with the author, Julia Quinn. And now we present to you Bridgerton, The Duke and I, abridged. In Regency England, eligible bachelors and available young ladies of society attend balls and parties in an effort to find the perfect match. But Daphne Bridgerton has formed friendships with most of the available young men in London, not yet a romantic match. Daphne is the fourth child and first daughter out of the eight children raised by Lady Bridgerton, who is determined to see her daughter married by the end of this season. Daphne is also protected and teased by her older brothers, Anthony, Benedict, and Colin, further complicating the search for a husband. Meanwhile, Simon Bassett, Duke of Hastings, has returned to London from abroad. Despite his intentions to shun marriage, he quickly gets sucked into the social scene, since he is a grade-A catch. Handsome, titled, and witty, every woman vies for his attention. After he rescues Daphne from an overzealous and nerdy suitor, he proposes a deal. Simon and Daphne shall pretend to court. For Simon, this will fend off aggressive young ladies and their mothers. And for Daphne, it makes her instantly more desirable to the other young men about town. At first, everything proceeds apace until one faded evening in Lady Trowbridge's garden. What did you think of this book, Tavia? Ah, Eliza, I could not put it down. It was so delightful. Of course, I, you know, it's a romance novel, so you know how it's going to end. But the journey to get there was so wonderful, so pleasing, just so funny and varied. And yes, of course, the author's playing with tropes from the genre, but I just absolutely loved it. It was just such a bright spot during this time for me. I totally agree. I felt it was really fun and vibrant and bustling, and there was so much going on. And I loved the parties and the depictions of Regency England. It was so fun to read. I totally understand why there are just legions and legions of fans for the series. And, you know, I guess the series is like 20 years old, which is the book feels so fresh. It doesn't have that, you know, it doesn't feel like something that was written 20 years ago. It's just her voice is still so just leaps off the page. 
I love especially the cast of characters, the eight siblings, the eight Bridgerton siblings. Oh, my God. They're named in alphabetical order, <laughs> Anthony, Benedict, Colin, Daphne, et cetera, et cetera. And they're, you know, I mean, I've said this before on the podcast. I love reading books about big families with a lot of siblings. Like we talked about this with the Sweeney sisters and the last romantics. And here it was just another book about a big family. It was so fun to read. One thing that I just love about historical books in general, romance or otherwise, are the outfits, like the dresses. Oh my gosh. I just am such a sucker for historical dresses. And I get to see them in real life when the Netflix series drops on December 25th, every single episode. So I think I know what I'm doing on December 26th. I've seen a few of the like they've done some like sneak peeks and posted a trailer for the Netflix series, which is called Bridgerton. It looks incredible. I can't wait to talk to the author, Julia Quinn, about the adaptation. I know. I know. This is going to be a great conversation. Okay. Toast to you, Eliza. Cheers. Cheers, Tavia. (laughs) Quick reminder, we love hearing from you, especially now that we're working from home. Join our Facebook group, The Book Club Girls, where you can stay connected with other book lovers and pose your own questions to authors who appear on our show. You can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash The Book Club Girls. And stay tuned after the show for a short exclusive sample from Bridgerton, the Duke and I audiobook. Today, we're joined by Julia Quinn, whose book Bridgerton, the Duke and I is out now. Julia, welcome to the Book Club Girl podcast. We are so glad you're here. Thank you. I am glad to be here too. There's so much to discuss, first of all, but we want to ask you specifically why you decided to set this series in the Regency era. Well, I should preface basically every answer I'm going to give you with the fact that I wrote the book 22 years ago. So there are a lot of things I might not remember. (laughs) Um... (laughs) I mean, it's kind of mind-boggling to me that it was that long ago, but the book came out in January of the year 2000, which is now a little over 20 years ago. And so then I started working backwards trying to figure out when I would have written it because I have to turn it in, you know, nine to 12 months ahead of time. So um, as to why I said it in the Regency, this was my eighth novel and all my books had been set in the Regency. I think the the question isn't really just why I set this book, but why I started writing in the Regency. And well, the short answer is it was what I like to read. And so when I was reading books for fun, I would pick up, you know, historical romance set in the Regency time period or something very close to it. And it was just what I really enjoyed. And so when I decided to try my hand at writing, I think it makes sense that that's what I would gravitate to. Um, I think you know, it would have been a little strange if I thought to myself, I'm going to write, you know, a space opera romance because <laughs> that, that wasn't what I was reading. You know, nothing against them. It's just it wasn't what I was reading or what I knew anything about. And, and then as time went on, I think it became apparent to me that this was a subgenre of the larger romance genre that worked well with my particular skills as a writer. My strengths, I think, are in writing dialogue, less so in writing description, perhaps. And the Regency is known for this sort of, you know, these conversations and this, and this banter and the witty repartee. And so it worked really quite well for a writer of my particular skill set. I love that. The dialogue in this book is just so fun to read. Like you're saying, it's like, it's snappy, it's witty, it's clever. It's really fun. Well, the nice thing about being a writer is that, you know, you're 
your people get to say what you would have thought to say three hours later. You know, <laughs> they can be slightly better versions of you. And I, I'd like to think I'm pretty good at coming up with a comeback on the spot. And and sometimes I am, but you, you know, everybody has that moment where like, oh, that would have been the perfect thing to say. And that's the nice thing about being a writer is you can go back and say, oh yeah, Daphne gets to think of it on time, even if I couldn't, you know. Well, and that's like the Duke's calling card, right? Like that's how he actually covers up his stutter is that he he becomes this great wit in uh, in mm-hmm. society, you know, taking down all of his, anyone who may try to challenge him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask you about some of these characters because okay. the Bridgertons are just an incredible group of characters. And one of the members of our book club girl Facebook group, we got a ton of great questions from your readers online. So we're going to try and sprinkle those in here too. So a member of our Facebook group, Shoshi, wants to know how you accurately captured specifically the brother-sister relationships, I think between Daphne and her three older brothers, but then also the dynamic of such a big family. Well, I have a big family. I have four brothers and sisters. Well, one brother, three sisters, two full sisters, and then a half brother and sister. So there is kind of a big age gap there. Uh, I don't have a big brother like Daphne does, so that I had to just imagine. But on top of that, I come from a family where we actually know our cousins pretty well, um, and not even just first cousins, but some of the second cousins. And and so we definitely have some of these moments where there's just a lot going on. <laughs> and you know, nobody believes me when I tell them I'm like the quiet one in the family, which, <laughs> but, you know, I'm certainly like, maybe not the most quiet one, but but I'm, I'm, I'm up there. And so it's just like my sense of like these kind of boisterous gatherings and, and how people act with each other. And, you know, you know, there's this great moment. I remember we were all in some cabin in Maine and, you know, my younger brother had just gotten big enough that he was bigger than my sister and me. Uh, he's, he's 11 years younger than I am. So, and I can't remember what had happened, but like he had her head like over the toilet and was trying to like push it in. This is my <laughs> older sister, okay? And she basically, she was the one who wailed on me as a kid, okay? So I was having all sorts of schadenfreude of watching this. And finally, he's like, will you just let me put your head in the toilet so we could all go get lunch? You know? <laughs> and I, I've wanted to put the equivalent of that in a book so many times. But there's so much going on in that little exchange. It's, you know, the brother being like, just let me like have this win so we can like stop with this and go eat. But also the other sibling who was me in this watching this being like, and I believe I, I don't remember this, but my sister remembers it. She said, I said, I have waited my whole life for this moment, you know, just <laughs> watching her get her come up, of, you know, because she had spent you know so much time torturing me. So I think, you know, in terms of the family dynamic, that just comes from what I see and grew up with. Um, And then what she asked more specifically about the brother-sister relationship, I think that's just all part of it. I definitely have these moments from the book that are coming back to me where, especially at the parties where like the brother or Daphne are sort of like, you know, uh, trapped by some, either some suitor, some awful suitor or some, you know, mother who's got them pinned down and the siblings are watching them across the room kind of like laughing at them rather than going to rescue them. Mm-hmm. Like I could totally relate to that. Yeah. There's <laughs> this um, one little, I'm, I'm probably not supposed to say too much about the series, the show, but there's a little moment in the show I love so much where Anthony 
tells Benedict to like go dance with your sister, ask your sister to dance. And Benedict's like, why? You know, it was just like the perfect <laughs> response. He's just like, why? You know, I just, I loved it. It just captured it perfectly. So we have another question about the siblings. Emily, who is from our Facebook group, asked who your favorite sibling is in the Bridgerton brood and why. I don't have a favorite. That's <laughs> no. I, I, I'm going to pass on that one. That's too pass. hard. <laughs> there are things I love about each of them as a character, and then as the writer of this series, you know, there are moments and memories with the writing of each book that also, you know, I hold close, and so. I get asked a lot, you know, which is your favorite book? And I I can't answer that for all the same reasons. And each book or character has something special that, to me, both in terms of who they came out to be and what it came out to be, but also with the process. And so it's just, it's too hard. Sorry. So speaking of the process of crafting these characters, is there one character in The Duke and I that was maybe like particularly challenging to write or presented like sort of any obstacles to sort of get them on the page? I don't think in particular. I know I did a fair bit of research on stuttering. Um, That was not Mm. something I knew a lot about. So that was a bit of a challenge because, you know, I wanted, I I don't want to say I wanted to get it right because I don't think there is one universal experience. In fact, I, I know there isn't, but I wanted to get it, have something plausible and accurate. That was a bit of a challenge to get that across and to be like, okay, how do you incorporate this I don't know if he would call it a disability or not. I mean, he's he's overcome the worst of it. But how would you incorporate this in a way that gets his vulnerability across, but he still gets to be this, you know, romance novel hero? And, right. And how might somebody overcome this? And how might somebody overcome this in 1813 when they really didn't understand anything about speech pathology? So mm-hmm. that I do remember being a bit of a challenge. That's so interesting. It made me think of um, the King's speech. Totally. Yes. Although I don't think by the time we meet Simon, it's nothing as as difficult as that. Right. So. Right. 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 Yeah. And that hadn't come out yet, so I didn't have. Right. That you to go preempted on. that, so it was your idea. I first. did. It was totally. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind that the P- King's Speech is based on a true story. <laughs> You're listening to the Book Club Girl podcast, where our guest this week is Julia Quinn, whose book Bridgerton: The Duke and I is out now. You can read more about Julia's books at bookclubgirl.com slash podcast. Coming up on the Book Club Girl podcast, Julia answers more questions. And later in the show, we ask about her literary white whale. Don't go away. This episode of the Book Club Girl podcast is brought to you by The Lady Brewer of London by Karen Brooks. In the early 1400s, the daughter of a wealthy merchant finds herself orphaned and begins brewing ale to support the family left behind. Her ale wins a following in the community, yet she must fight against those who would thwart her boldness. Available wherever books are sold. Welcome back to the show. This episode, we're speaking with Julia Quinn, author of Bridgerton, The Duke and I. We have another really interesting question about the Regency from one of your readers, Mary, who wants to know about the societal restrictions and expectations that were placed on women Mm -hmm. and what women of that era thought about those restrictions. Did they think of them as restrictions? Was it just how it was? Just sort of from your expertise in that era, I think people are curious to know. Well, again, I don't think there's any one universal experience. I mean, even now, when you look at how women feel about our place in society, our roles in society, they feel very differently. I think for a lot of women, it was simply, this is how it is. 
They didn't necessarily have, I don't know if you want to call it the imagination to envision how it might be different or the energy to envision how it might be different. I mean, for a lot of women, you know, especially I'm writing about extremely privileged women in terms of the socioeconomic strata, but, you know, for a lot of women, like, you know, if you're busy doing the work all day, you don't have the energy to envision how it might be different. But I think for other women, there were. And I think that in terms of kind of a feminist awakening for women, a lot of it came a bit after this period. And so a lot of the women that I write about are the ones who are just kind of realizing, hey, wait a minute. You know, so they're not the ones, you know, at the top of the barricade waving the flag because we're not quite there yet. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, some people are, I mean, Mary Wollstonecraft has already written and all that, but you know, these women also, they've lived such a privileged life that they haven't had to kind of also realize being like, you know, things are compared to other women, things are pretty good for them. So I really enjoy writing characters at the sort of dawn of this awakening, kind of realizing, huh, this isn't quite fair. Wait a minute. Like if I could go to university, I could learn about that, but they're not quite, you know, at the point where they're like banging down the doors. Mm -hmm. And so I like to think that if, you know, whoever is that woman who's going to storm the barricades and wave the, you know, lay Miz, I'm waving my arms like anybody can see me and wave the Les Mis flag, you know, <laughs> be, you know, be like, votes for women, let us in, you know, that sort of thing. For that woman to get over the barricade, there have to have been, you know, hundreds of women before her who like gently pulled out the bricks. And I'm writing about the women who are pulling out the bricks, who are kind of setting it up for a big revolution later. And that's, I think, just in part of the time period that we're in. But also I kind of like writing about this moment when you start to realize what's happening and what what your situation is in a lot of ways, because I think that a lot of women can identify with that. And I think in some ways it's a little more subversive. You know, if you are somebody who has never been a revolutionary in any way, you might not be able to identify with somebody who is this revolutionary, but you probably could identify with somebody who is maybe on her way or setting the stage for somebody who comes after her to pick up the reins and, and take it further. And I just, I really like that little wake up moment. It's kind of on my mind because I know we're not talking about my most recent book, but it's called First Come Scandal. And that, the heroine of that book, who's actually Daphne Bridgerton's aunt, it's a prequel, her name's uh, Georgiana Bridgerton. She is in a situation where, you know, somebody kidnaps her for her dowry and she manages to get away, but now she's ruined and he's like totally fine. And she's just kind of like, you know, she's lived this whole life where she, you know, everything's been fine. And that was just like, wait a minute. She's like, this is so wrong. Like somebody kidnapped me and I got escaped. I like made my own for, I, I took care of myself. There should be parades in my honor. And instead I'm ruined, you know? And so that's kind of her like little feminist awakening. So I, I really like these moments of where women kind of realize, hold on, this is, this is so wrong. And in the case of the Dukenites, where Daphne's like, wait a minute, how on earth have I been, you know, sent into marriage with zero information about anything, you know? So, you know, and how is that right and fair? Yeah. And so it's it's that kind of moment I really like. So I love that you brought up your most recent book, because one question that we'd love to ask our authors is, what are you working on next? But in this case, it's more specific. So are you continuing to write books in the, you know, that feature these characters from the Bridgerton novels? And also, can we look forward to one in 2021? So in 2021, it's actually something a little different for me. It is a graphic novel. Wow. That is so cool. Yeah. I don't know whether how far into the Bridgerton series you guys have gone, but in It's in His Kiss, which is the seventh book, it's about Hyacinth, 
basically she is she goes to visit Lady Danbury, who's everybody's favorite crotchety old woman, uh, <laughs> once a week, and she reads to her. That's that's something she does, and she reads to her from this gothic novel called Miss Butterworth and the Mad Baron, and it is over the top bad. I mean, it is like such like purple prose, like you wouldn't believe. Like every chapter <laughs> ends with like the heroine basically she's like hanging from a cliff. She's broken both her legs. I think at one point. She was almost captured into like slavery. I mean, just like all these things, total perils of Pauline type thing. And and it's really badly written too. And I, it's really fun to write bad writing. Let me tell you. Um, <laughs> and so I had so much fun with this book that it ends up popping up in some other novels. I had other things. And, and it kind of culminated in a book called What Happens in London, where like at one point, somebody's doing like a dramatic reading from it, you know, and <laughs> and it's really funny. and like. Half the household is like entranced and the hero and heroine are like, how does everybody not realize that this is like the worst piece of literature ever written? This has been going on in a lot of books. And eventually readers started asking me to write Miss Butterworth and the Mad Baron. And I was, I was like, I can't do that. It's like, it's really <laughs> fun to write a paragraph or two, or two, but I couldn't possibly write a whole novel. And then a little later, it occurred to me that it actually would make a really good graphic novel. And my youngest sister is a cartoonist. So we did it together. And, you know, it was a fascinating process. I've never written with a partner before. You know, the book says, you know, has my name at the top and says illustrated by Violet Charles. She did a lot of the writing too. It just was kind of hard to set it up any other way on the cover. And um, we pretty much just finished it. And it'll be coming out it's either going to be June or July. They're not quite sure. And it is so much fun. So that's what's coming out next year. And then it won't be till 2022 that it'll be a prose novel. I have not been very conscientious during the pandemic and quarantine. I just haven't. I've been working on the graphic novel. I've been like dealing with a lot of stuff with the upcoming Netflix show, which is pretty darn exciting. And and also just taking care of my family. Um, my husband is an infectious disease specialist. He's a oh doctor. Oh my gosh! Whoa! Oh my gosh! Yeah. So it's kind of like you know he's <laughs> his whole life has been leading up to this moment. Um, <laughs> so he's been really busy and really stressed and really exhausted. And so I just have been kind of taking over more caretaker roles. I think you know for the family and also more specifically for him because it's been just a grueling, grueling year. It's not an easy time to be an ID doc. That's for yeah. sure. Wow, I yeah. can only imagine. Well, we are really excited for the graphic novel. It sounds like such a treat. So you mentioned the Netflix series a few times. We're so excited. Oh I can't wait until the yeah. Bridgertons come to Netflix December 25th. Do you have any stories to share from the process of developing the books into the TV series? Does the season super closely follow the Duke and I or, or what can people expect? We're all on the edge of our seats. Okay, me too. Uh, <laughs> so the first season does mostly follow the story of the Duke and I. They really have created something that is like watching a romance novel, which is amazing because you've never really had that, or at least not a historical romance novel in this way. Um, there is Outlander, which I always say is romance adjacent, but it's mm -hmm. not quite like a romance novel. But this really does feel like you're watching a romance novel, but it's also got a little more. So it's The Duke and I Plus. And it's absolutely spectacular. I mean, just, I, I can't even, I'm like, I can't even with the <laughs> sets and the costumes. You need to watch it and then just like watch it with the sound off just to like visually enjoy everything because it's just unbelievable. I mean, when I went to this, I visited the set twice 
once when they were shooting on location and once when they were shooting on the soundstage where they built the sets and everything. And both were amazing, amazing experiences. But when I went to the soundstage, they actually filmed me for some sort of behind the scenes thing. And I have no idea whether it worked out or not, whether we'll ever see it. But they filmed me, they walked me in like with my hands over my eyes or somebody, you know, so that I couldn't see until I got to like the the big reveal moment. And I was just Again, I'm like making faces like the readers can see it, but like picture me sort of like, you know, mouth agape, eyes like big being like, I couldn't even speak. I was like, uh, 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 it was just so spectacular. I mean, you cannot believe what they did. And I mean, it is just an incredible experience to see it. And that's just the visuals. And then on top of that, the scripts are just incredible. I mean, the way they adapted them is from a, just a purely intellectual level for me, fascinating because it's not a word for word adaptation in any way, shape or form and nor should it be. But even so the characters are absolutely who I wrote and the main plot is absolutely there, but you've got like a little more going on. And then if there are a few things that are different, there are a few new characters, Queen Charlotte, who is spectacular. Wow. And I go back and forth between wishing I'd written her in the books and being glad that I didn't write her because I don't think I could have done as good a job as they did in the series. <laughs> That's how good she is. Wow. Um, and then also the mystery of who Lady, of, you know, who is Lady Whistledown, that mm-hmm. plays a bigger role than it does in the first book. That becomes like That's a big so central exciting. thing. We simply cannot wait. No, truly. Okay. So we have one final question for you before we let you go. It's the question that we ask all of our authors who are guests on the podcast. Um, The last question is, what is your literary white whale? So what's a book that you've always meant to read or always meant to finish and just haven't gotten around to it? Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, this is embarrassing. It's a really embarrassing white whale. Do I dare give it to you? We've heard a lot of white whales. You'd be surprised. I have never read Hamlet. That's a good one. I don't think we – Tavia, have we had Shakespeare before? No, we had Will in the World. Right. right, the biography. Yeah. I I don't think I've actually read Hamlet. I mean, I've read a lot of Shakespearean plays, and I've seen Hamlet, both on stage and on screen, but I don't think I have actually read it, and I probably should, yeah. <laughs> That's one of those books you could almost feel like you read because it's so – I'm looking at my shelves right now because I feel like it must be here, right, on my shelves. But yeah, and and isn't it funny? Like I had to stop and think like, have I read it? I feel like, (laughs) you know, it's like I must have read it, right? But I don't think I have. Oh, oh, oh my gosh. You know who's going to be – I don't know if I'm going to be able to face Eloisa James now. Um, (laughs) So for people who don't know her, she is a fabulous, fabulous romance writer. And she's also in her day job, a professor of Shakespeare. And (gasps) if she hears this, I'm I'm never going to hear the end of it. She's going to come calling. (laughs) Oh, she'll be scolding me in her like, in uh, her best (laughs) professorial voice. Like, what? Well, Julia Quinn, it has been such a treat to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. We're so, so excited for uh, the Bridgertons to come to Netflix. And uh, thank you so much for being here today to chat about it. Thank you. This was great. That was Julia Quinn, whose book, Bridgerton, The Duke and I, is out now. To find out more about Julia's novel and her forthcoming graphic novel, Miss Butterworth and the Mad Baron, and how to buy copies, head to bookclubgirl.com slash podcast. 
where you can also find links to everything mentioned in this episode. Like what you heard? Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please give us a rating and leave a review. We might just read it on air. Another way to help spread the word about the Book Club Girl podcast, tell a friend. It really helps others to find us. You will hear from us again in two weeks when we'll be speaking with New York Times bestselling author Paulette Giles about her National Book Award finalist novel, News of the World. If you want to read the book before the podcast drops, head over to hc.com and use promo code BOOKCLUBGIRL, that's all one word, for 25% off and free shipping for any book discussed on the podcast. That's a good deal. I think so. Please stay in touch with us between episodes. We're both on Instagram. You can find me at Tavia Reads and Eliza is at Eliza is Reading and of course at Book Club Girl. You can join in our next conversation. We will be speaking with a true book club favorite, author Nadia Hashimi, author of The Pearl That Broke Its Shell. If you have a question for Nadia about this novel, you can email us at thegirls at bookclubgirl.com or post in the comments on our Facebook group. You can also leave us a voicemail. Our number is 212-207-7336. Before we go, a big thank you to Charles de Montebello who produced today's episode, to Jess Lyons for helping to book today's interview, to Julia Quinn for using her own recording equipment for today's interview, and to Katie Leary, who makes all our own promotional videos. Until next time, I'm Eliza. And I'm Tavia. Happy reading.